Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Today, Andrew and I have been thinking a lot about metabolism. Uh, Actually, we've been thinking about this for a little while, and so this episode is overdue, and I think on more than one occasion, I've uh, I've mentioned in in our past chats that uh, oh, we really have to do an episode on metabolism, and so uh, here it is. And uh, before we launch in, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Andrew to make sure that uh, I, I don't go too uh, too deep into the weeds on this <laughs> one because it's uh, it's a topic of conversation that I can uh, pontificate on for uh, for probably longer than most of you want to listen to me. And that'll be fairly easy for me to rein you in because a lot of this is new to me. So if I feel like you're getting over my head, I'll just, uh, I'll be honest and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> that's, a, that's a deal. Um, so I think a, a great place to start is to define the term, um, what metabolism is and why it's relevant to endurance athletes. And in very simple terms, it's the conversion of of chemical energy from food uh, or stored food um, into useful energy for us people who want to go far and want to go fast. So we take that food chemical energy and we break it down literally into smaller components and uh, the resultant energy, uh, that chemical energy that comes from the, from those reactions, and they are quite complicated, um, we can turn into mechanical energy. So mechanical energy to turn the cranks, mechanical energy to push the ground away from us when we're running or push the water when we're swimming. And then that mechanical energy makes us go fast. That sound about right? Yeah, that sounds good to me. And as an engineer, especially as a mechanical engineer, um, (laughs) this is a very easy definition where it doesn't get into the chemistry. So thinking we've got a certain amount of energy stored in our food, we eat that energy and process it in different ways. And then it comes out as different types of energy. I like that. I like that definition. It's nice and (laughs) clear cut for me. Yeah, it gets it does get a little bit messier once we start talking about the biochemistry. And I, I promise I'll I won't, you know, turn this into, you know, a first year biology classroom, um, but we'll, we'll kind of take away the, the important bits. So what, what are those, what are those important bits? Why do we care? So, you know, now that we know what metabolism is, why is it relevant to endurance athletes? Actually, it's relevant to everything that wants to live. But for us specifically, um, the faster you can turn that chemical energy into mechanical energy, the faster you go. And that's a really simplified version of uh, of that explanation. But the the faster you can generate mechanical energy means the more power you have, because power, of course, is you know energy over unit time. So the faster you make energy, the more power you have. The more power you have, the faster you go. And I always like looking at nature for some of these examples. So there's some really neat, uh, just very simple examples that people are probably familiar with, but they don't always take the time to think about it. Um, So hummingbirds, I think, are a great example. Uh, When you see them, well, (laughs) when you try to see them move, quite often (laughs) it's a blur. But uh, for us, it's just impossible to move that fast. They've got these incredibly high heart rates, and they're always just buzzing around, and everything seems frenetic and very rushed. And that's just a function of them having an extremely high metabolism. So they're always eating. They go to almost pure sugar sources uh, just to get that really readily available energy. And the, the only way that they can continue to survive is by eating all the time. Uh, so they're, yeah, very interesting example. But uh, again, in the animal kingdom, there's the the polar opposite, the the sloth, which basically by its definition is laziness. Uh, but they're also a very cool animal because they've got a, a very efficient metabolism. So they have very little waste heat. Um, they don't need to eat much food. Um, their movements are just very slow and deliberate for, for each time they move their arms or legs. Um, there's a lot of maybe thought that goes into it because they have to conserve as much energy as possible. Uh, so it's, it's really neat to look at these two polar examples and, and just seeing, okay, nature has found optimal solutions through millions of years of evolution, but they're, they're completely different. And I think in some cases they even overlap in where they live. So it's not like there's one optimal solution, but uh, yeah, sloths, I think it's safe to say they're not about to win any running races. 
Um, so the, the stat I heard is they move about 500 meters per hour, uh, at top wow. speed. So, <laughs> which feels like some of my runs, but, uh, that's besides <laughs> the point. And then of course, humans fall somewhere in between the hummingbirds and the sloths, but the, um, you know, you, you brought up a couple of really important, uh, points there with the, with the animal analogies, Andrew, and that is that. If you want to, you know, if you want to move fast, if you want to be a hummingbird, there are certain considerations with what kind of fuels you're going to use. And we'll get into that a little bit later. And uh, if you want to be incredibly efficient and deliberate with your with your movement and conserve as much energy as possible, you kind of want to be in the opposite in the in that opposite direction. Now, as I said, uh, people and endurance athletes fall somewhere in between those those two uh, extremes, but uh, there there are relevant there are relevant lessons to be learned there. Yeah, yeah, and I'm very very keen to learn some of these lessons because, like I mentioned before, this is a big learning experience for me. Sure. So let's dive right in um, <clears throat> for. Uh, for humans and, uh, I think all eukaryotes, which are, you know, if you remember back your, back to your high school biology days, those are, uh, the animal celled organisms as opposed to the plants of our, of our animal kingdoms. Um, we produce power in, uh, produce or use energy in three different ways. Uh, we'll go through all three of them, but really only two are super useful to our conversation. So the first uh, thing to understand is, uh, and I'm going to drop this, this term frequently, so it's, it's a good idea to at least have a rough concept of what it means, and that's uh, this molecule called ATP or adenosine triphosphate. Uh, not a super important to understand its chemistry, and I do not fully understand its chemistry, but uh, it is important to know that ATP is almost like the currency of your energy system. Um, and that, that means is that in order to do anything, whatever it is that you're doing, contract a muscle, you know, think a thought, um, really do any of the biological pro processes that we do, you know, millions of times a second, um, you need to expend some of this currency. And by that, I mean, you, you convert ATP into ADP, uh, it loses a phosphate group. And um, in order to then regenerate those stores, you have to do something else. So if we think of ATP as the, you know, the energy currency of our bodies, um, when we think about metabolism, we're thinking about making more ATP. The more ATP you have, the more stuff you can do and the faster you can do it. So that's, uh, that's ATP. So that leads us nicely into the, the first of what they call the three energy systems. And that is the creatine phosphate ATP system. Um, so simply put, you have a reserve of this chemical called creatine phosphate, which can then donate a phosphate to your ADP uh, to create more ATP. Um, this happens very, very quickly. Uh, it does not require oxygen. And if you are performing work that is that requires a lot of power, so think of you know, mo a lot of movements in the gym or, uh, or really, you know, probably the shortest events in the, in track and field, uh, really just the hundred meter, hundred meter sprint comes to mind or any of the, you know, the throwing events, uh, any of the powerlifting or Olympic weightlifting events, you are primarily using this energy system, which again, does not require oxygen, produces energy very, very rapidly and is depleted very rapidly. So if you were to go completely hog wild, you might have, you know, seven to 10 seconds of this uh, creatine phosphate reserve to regenerate your ATP if you're fully rested. And I guess thinking of the 100 meter dash, which I'm sure most people have at least attempted at some point, um, I know personally, it feels like when you start off, you're, you know, you're a monster and you can go, go forever. And then, yeah, a few seconds down the road, um, all of a sudden your muscles start to say, oh, hold on. And, and that's probably the limit where you're starting to run out of this as a power source. And uh, at that point, you're mostly accelerated, but um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of muscular strength leading up to that where it's not really the limit of the energy availability. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, in a, in a, in a hundred meter sprint, obviously there are metabolic constraints in this creatine phosphate loop and then also muscular constraints. Obviously, you know, you look at the, the likes of a uh, hundred meter sprinters, like you look at Usain Bolt, he doesn't look like your average human being. He is a very muscular fellow. Uh, and that's, that's what he needs in order to do what he does. Um, so that's uh that's a creatine phosphate cycle. It is actually, 
uh, it's important to understand that it's always active. So it's not as if any, really any of these three systems is ever shut off or, or, or fully on. They're always operating to some extent. So at maximal energy, maximal intensities rather, um, the creatine phosphate system is dominant. Um, but at other intensities, it's still it's still active, but it's not as uh, it's obviously not as dominant. And it's important to understand too that the the creatine phosphate reserve is recharged um, when the intensity slows. So it's not as if you you know you uh, expend it and then it's gone. As soon as you lower the intensity of your exercise or take a rest, then your body regenerates creatine phosphate quite quickly. Um, I think on the order of, I think uh, if I remember correctly, about 10 minutes and you're fully restocked. So, and that's to be fully restocked. You can be almost, almost there with, uh, with a much shorter, uh, much shorter restoration. But again, this energy system is a little bit less relevant to those of us who are, you know, endurance athletes. And that I would define as, let's say, you know, events that are 10 minutes or longer. So the big question I have here is um, if this is such an effective way to liberate energy, how come our bodies only store such a small amount of it? Is it just very inefficient or uh, there's got to be some evolutionary pressure that leads to us only having a very small amount of it? Uh, Because if we could run, you know, 100 meter speeds for a marathon, then that would seem like a, a very well, a very good way of avoiding predators, um, but uh, obviously that's not the way it works. So I'm, I'm just curious if you know some of the background and the chemistry as to why we can't do that, why we have limited stores of creatine phosphate. I would think that it has to do with the energy density of the molecule. So I think that, and this is me just purely guessing. So, you know, take it for what it is. I suspect that other sources of energy, like um, like glucose and fat, which is which are the other two big ones, and we'll talk to you in the next next two sections um, are much more energy dense. So for the amount of like so per you know per gram, let's say you're going to get a lot more pop from uh, from uh, glucose or from fat than you would from um, from creatine phosphate. That's a guess. It could also be that I think it could also be that it's it's a costly molecule to have a lot of. That could be a that could be a reason too. So having like a ton of creatine in your body is 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 not you know. It is not uh, somehow biologically attractive. So um, that's a long way of me to say to answer your question in the I have no idea way. But I can kind of only only hazard a couple of guesses. And now that I've completely thrown you under the bus with an unplanned question, um, yeah, <laughs> and that's my guess as well is that it's just inefficient. Because if you look at the way the body optimizes itself, when you're at high altitude versus low altitude, you'll generate more red blood cells. And the main reason you don't do that at low altitude is because you don't really need them and they're energetically costly. Um, so it's just less efficient for your body to do that. Um, so I would, I would assume yes. that there's an efficiency reason for that. But uh, yeah, again, no idea, just uh, kind of my roundabout way of reasoning. I think you're right. And, and without even, you know, without even knowing what the specific mechanism for that inefficiency is, I think kind of if you were to give it an umbrella term of efficiency, I think you're absolutely right that, that creatine phosphate is not the most efficient way to, to uh, make energy. So um, the second system that kicks in, commonly called the anaerobic or the glycolytic system. So there's an important reason why it's called the glycolytic system. What glycolysis means is the splitting up of glucose. So um, obviously the, the fuel, the substrate for this energy system is glucose. And um, it's, uh, the glycolytic system is sort of like a medium duration system in that, uh, you know, it, it really depends how well trained it is, but it'll give you energy from, you know, anywhere from like 30 seconds to, uh, you know, four or five minutes, maybe it depends on how heavily it's being used, but you can, you can really, you know, you can saturate it a lot sooner than five minutes also. Um, it is also always active. So no matter what you're doing, your glycolytic system is always going. And the reason it's always going is because it's actually one of the precursors of the, of the aerobic system. So the way that it works, again, without getting into high school or, or you know, early university level chemistry, is you get a glucose, which you get from uh, yeah, either blood sugar that, uh, you know, that's freely available floating in the, in the plasma or from the breakdown of glycogen, which is you can think of as kind of animal starch, uh, glycogen stored in the working muscles. 
Glucose is broken down into uh, two molecules of pyruvate, and you get some ATP from this breakdown. So that's great. You've made some ATP. Uh, and uh, this process, importantly, does not require oxygen. And that is why it is sometimes called the anaerobic system, because there's no oxygen required. Now, if there is, so if there is no oxygen present, then that pyruvate begins to accumulate. Um, and as it accumulates, your body then ferments it into lactic acid, which is a term that uh, most of our listeners will probably be quite familiar with. Now, lactate uh, used to be for many years thought of as a, as a waste product of, of this kind of uh, metabolism, but it turns out it's not really because as soon as then you reintroduce oxygen, that lactate can be then converted back to pyruvate and then the pyruvate can enter um, the third uh, energy system, the aerobic system. Well, I was going to say, I, I just like that uh, how our understanding has changed of things where it was once seen as a waste product. It's now just a fuel for another system. So we're just essentially preparing ourselves. So uh, again, again, going to evolution. Um, so say you're sprinting away from a saber-toothed tiger. Um, as your, as your um, anaerobic system is depleted, then you've got essentially all this fuel ready for your aerobic system and preparing for that. That's right. Yeah. So even though the, the relatively relative to the aerobic uh, the the purely aerobic system of our metabolism, the gly the glycolytic or the anaerobic system, does not provide as much energy. Um, that fermented lactic acid is actually not a waste product. It can be in again in the presence of oxygen, then re, you know reoxidized into pyruvate, and then that pyruvate will enter this this third and the most relevant for us endurance folks um, of the metabolic pathways. Uh, which is, of course, the aerobic system. So um, in the aerobic system, you take you take that molecule of pyruvate and then you run it through what's called the Krebs cycle or the citric acid cycle, and you produce a whopping 10 um, ATP molecules from each molecule of pyruvate. So that is obviously way more efficient than the two that you get from the actual creation of the pyruvate in the, in the glycolytic system. And this is where, you know, you kind of, you really make you really can do a lot with your with your food energy, and that's in the presence of oxygen. So, uh, some important things to talk about in the in the aerobic system. It is the dominant energy system for uh, for pretty much every endurance athlete. If you're doing something that's that's longer than five minutes, most of your energy for that activity, for that let's say all out, let's say you're running a mile time trial, most of us are not going to be running under five minutes unless we're quite fast. Um, the most of our energy is coming from this aerobic pathway. So even though creatine phosphate system is active, even though the glycolytic system is very active at five minutes, most of our energy is still going to come from the, uh, from the aerobic system. And this is a super important uh, takeaway, which I'll touch on in a little bit. So the aerobic system itself, you, it has two, um, you know, two potential sources of fuel. And this is also kind of important to understand because there, I think there are some misconceptions with the aerobic system is yes, you can take straight up glucose, break it down into pyruvate through glycolysis. The pyruvate enters the Krebs cycle, produces a whole ton of ATP. Terrific. The other way you can fuel the, the, uh, the Krebs cycle is through what they call beta oxidation. And that is the breakdown of, uh, of free fatty acids. So this is, you know, endogenous or stored in the body fat that is broken down. And then those components are used in the, uh, in the aerobic metabolism without the breakdown of glucose. So this is when, um, when we talk about using fat for fuel, this is exactly what we're talking about. And then there are, there are obvious um, advantages of this kind of process um, because we have essentially limitless stores of endogenous fat and quite limited stores of endogenous um, glycogen or glucose. Um, so those are two ways to fuel the aerobic system with, uh, with glucose or with fat. So what I've seen here is essentially the reconstruction of the critical power curve, um, or the critical speed curve, however you want to look at it, because you've got these three systems that are operating significantly differently and they fill out the different areas of that curve. The really steep part where we're in the creatine phosphate, like the, the short sprints where we can do massive power outputs, like multiples of your FTP. Um, and then you kind of blend into this medium term and then it, it turns into a very flat line that extends almost out into infinity where we're supplying things aerobically and, and 
we can just go forever as long as we've got those fat reserves. And <laughs> as as you mentioned, uh, people like myself often have very limitless <laughs> uh, fat supplies. So, um, so it's not really an issue to keep that going for me. For sure. Oh, and I would I would even say that not even like yourself, Andrew. Like even if you take an individual who is incredibly lean, you know, let's say mid or upper single digits fat percentage. If you, you know, uh, I should have done this math off the air because we promised we'd never do this. But like, <laughs> if you're, I'm gonna do some some top of my head math. If you take a 70 kilo athlete who's got, you know, seven percent body fat, that is just under five kilos of fat right? Um, Fat is incredibly energy dense. You get nine calories per gram. So, you know, in, uh, in a kilogram, you would get, you would get 9,000 calories. And then in five kilograms, you would get 45,000 calories. So 45,000 calories, obviously you couldn't go to 0%, but that's, so this is, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but you know, think of the last time you did a you did a workout that required forty five thousand calories. <laughs> Never mind, like ten thousand calories, right? Those workouts, you know, that's Iron Man, maybe. So we even the even the leanest, most ridiculously cut, superhuman looking individual bodybuilder would have enough endogenous fat reserves for really any kind of event, unless we're talking about you know uh, um, a stage marathon kind of thing like the this the marathon across the Sahara or something something similarly crazy well the stage races are a good example actually and this it just reminded me of this but I think there's been a trend with the the Grand Tour riders where they go into events just a little bit heavier than their ideal weight because they know that they can't fuel and they can't build up the the calories that they need because they will over the course of the tour burn well in excess of 45,000 calories. Uh, yep. So they they have to have this extra fat. So they they kind of fatten up before, not hibernation, but they fatten up before exercise, uh, which is, For uh, sure. it, it seems kind of backwards with the way a lot of people perceive them, but um, there's there's a very good physiological reason for that. Right. So, and and this is, uh, this is related to what our fuel preferences are and we can we can spend a whole you know a whole episode talking about fat versus carbohydrate fueling for endurance activities um but i think it's an important topic that we touch upon here um so i said earlier that you can fuel your aerobic metabolism which we all agree does you know the overwhelming majority of the work in order to put like put this in context at at threshold which is an uncomfortable intensity i think you and i will agree on that um, most athletes uh, will be able to meet their energy demands through the aerobic metabolism to the extent of like, I want to say around 90 to 95%. To put that another way, at your threshold power, 90 to 95% of that power of those watts are coming from the aerobic metabolism. The rest are coming from the glycolytic system. So that is the overwhelming majority of your of your powers coming aerobically so that this is why i say that you know for for those of you listening to this show who are endurance folks um the the really the really really important um metabolic pathway for you is the aerobic pathway our sports triathlon cycling um swimming running are overwhelmingly aerobic but that aerobic system can be fueled in two ways as i mentioned through glucose or through um or through fat uh, and so there's been a lot of talk and debate uh, recently about, you know, about uh, fat, a- fat adaptation and, and, inc- and increasing the, uh, you, the body's ability to use fat for fuel. And the reason you, you, you may want to be doing this is because of what I mentioned earlier, that you have virtually, you know, for all intents and purposes, unlimited stores of body fat to fuel exercise. So this is a really great thing if you're... Um, if you're doing, if you're training, if your training sessions or your races are going to be longer, and you're going to do events that are that basically unassisted would deplete your glycogen levels if you were working too hard for them. So the thinking goes, and I, I happen to agree with this: if you can improve the rate at which your body uses fat for fuel versus carbs for fuel you are basically sparing that fuel, that glycogen fuel that you have. And obviously you're gonna be taking some stuff on board as you go, um, but sparing that glycogen becomes essential in long races. So thinking like, you know, marathon, um, 70.3 distance, half Ironman or, or full Ironman for, 
most of our listeners and obviously any kind of ultra event uh, this becomes even more even more important so there is value in becoming fat adapted how you go about this there's actually you know the jury's still out i'm a fan of the the training approach i think that through correct training applications that's how you become um fat adapted uh there are some nutritional interventions as we call them you know like some fasted training that has been shown to have some benefits on fat utilization but not really benefits on in performance and uh, you know extreme extreme uh what i would consider to be extreme dietary interventions like low carb high fat although that's a really broad spectrum of what exactly low carb means um, but certainly like ketogenic diets are, and I'm going to, you know, I, I don't, I try not to get dogmatic with, uh, with my coaching and, and approaches, but I think <laughs> ketogenic diets have zero place in endurance training. I think they are, they are harmful and, um, this isn't my level of thinking, my kind of personal bias, but, uh, it's supported by uh, the overwhelming majority of sports scientists out there. It's kind of like the global warming of, uh, of, of diets. If you don't believe in, you know, carbohydrates for endurance performance, you're kind of like, you know, I would, I would equate you to a climate denier. That's my, that's my strong opinion on that one. I was hoping we'd touch on that because it's, it's something that's, um, it's kind of a, a bit of a fad right now. And I see there could potentially be uses for it, but in terms of ultimate performance, it's not really what it's intended for. Um, again, yep. looking at uh, the way our bodies work and the the evolution behind it, uh, like when we go into a state of ketosis, it was generally because we couldn't have or we couldn't find enough food to fuel ourselves. Uh, yeah, ketosis is starvation. This is like yeah. not ho a homeostatic, you know, place your body wants to be. This isn't. Yeah, it's exactly right. It's not what we evolved to do. Yeah, so I think the evidence is there. Like maybe you can leverage it for something, but generally speaking, the evidence is there showing that it's not really the evolutionary solution that our bodies had found as being the most optimal. For sure. If you, and and it, there's a really really simple example, and I actually don't have this specific numbers, but if you were to look at the um, <clears throat> again this the, going back to the fact that the ATP molecule is sort of the currency, the energetic currency of our bodies. If you were to go through beta oxidation, which remember is the, the breakdown of fat, if you follow that whole cycle and you look at how many ATP molecules you, you get at the end of that cycle versus how many oxygen molecules you've invested into that whole process, you will see that you get fewer ATP for the oxygen that you've invested compared to if you look at uh, first glycolysis, breakdown of glucose, and then uh, pyruvate entering the, the Krebs cycle, you actually can do more with less if you use glucose. And by mean more, more ATP. And when I say less, I mean less oxygen. So in terms of the oxygen use, you're more efficient to break down glucose rather than, than fat. And one other thing that's not really related to the, the chemistry, but in general, um, like the sugar sources or carbohydrate sources, they taste pretty good. Um, so the yep. psychology of it, if you feel like you're always starving yourself and you're trying to avoid certain foods that you might like the taste of, um, but they, they're not what you're aiming for, um, you end up in this position where you're always you're feeling deprived. So your training might suffer just for psychological reasons, if nothing else. So, um, so that's my little plug for why I eat lots of carbohydrates. For sure. And I think you bring up a, a super valuable point because ketosis is in order to, to achieve like true ketosis. Uh, and you know, again, I forget the numbers, but I think it's like for the average, the average adult male, I think it's something like under 50 grams of carbohydrates per day is the diet that over weeks, really, you, you do need to invest a significant amount of time to be, you know, keto adapted, as they say. Um, if you think about, if you look at, mac if you've ever looked at macronutrients in your food, to be under 50 grams of carbs per day is an incredibly difficult way to eat. So basically, all you're eating is butter and cheese and, you know, a little bit of lean meat like there's not or like fatty meat actually is fine too but there's a lot of vegetables become become out of the question because they just have too much carbohydrate um and then over the long term it, it becomes really hard to get all all the necessary micronutrients because you're cutting out you know the vegetables that are that have you know that have the naturally occurring micronutrients so you'd have to end up supplementing so it becomes a huge amount of work for um for a result that is you know i would say some you know some people would say it's it's questionable i would say it's conclusively not there 
I've, I've also heard that the people who tend to be on these really strict diets, um, they're not the most pleasant to be around in terms of maybe not the personality, but just the associated smells that come along with, uh, with eating these high fat diets. Um, and it's just, yeah, you end up with a whole bunch of gastrointestinal distress all the time because your body is not maybe happy with it. Um, and th this isn't a blanket statement. Like there's some people that it does work well for, but uh, there, I think, are a lot of people who just because it's such a large change in diet would kind of upset things and maybe you would adapt to it over time but yeah the people i've talked to um including one former olympic athlete um he he said it was just miserable for him he spent uh, a couple a couple months trying out this uh low carb high fat diet and he said his wife basically wouldn't be in the same room as him most of the time yeah yeah it's uh i, I don't even want to say it's not worth it because there's no there's not there's no payoff yeah, it's just it's you know in my opinion it's 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 just all downside. So we've talked quite a bit about the chemistry of it, but let's look at a, at a real world application of uh, two athletes, uh, myself and uh, one of the folks I coach, who's going to be doing the uh, Tremblant Ironman in uh, in four weeks, um, and the way that on paper we are quite similar. If we look. If you look at our anaerobic thresholds, we're both around 290 watts. Uh, but the way that he generates his his power is considerably more aerobic than the way that I generate my power. So here's why it matters in a race like an Ironman, which is obviously a very long race, and where uh, fuel availability is going to be a big deal. So because uh, this athlete is a little bit more aerobic than I am, he is able to use more fat for fuel than, than I am. So even though our anaerobic thresholds are pretty much the same, he will be able to hold a higher wattage on that bike leg than I would be if I were racing it, which thankfully I am not. <laughs> uh, so uh, kind of his ambitious plan right now is 230 watts. And the, here's how we arrived at this number. At 230 watts um, and 290 is, is, is his threshold. So this is actually quite a high number. And I think we'll probably lower it on race day, but you know we're, we still have some time to make that decision. At 230 watts, most of his energy, most of his power, excuse me, most of that 230 watts is going to be supplied by fat metabolism. And the shortfall is going to have to be met by uh, his endogenous glycogen storage. So this, the glycogen he has in his, in his working muscles, as well as, um, you know, carbohydrates that he eats during the race. Um, and then the, the kind of the, the popularly accepted maximum for carbohydrate intake that your body can absorb is around 90 grams per hour if it's been trained. So 90 grams is a lot. If you've never tried it, it's, well, it's a lot of sugar. But uh, this athlete's, you know, he's, he's been doing it for a while. He's, he's happy to hit 90 grams per hour. He can tolerate it. He feels good at that, at that intake. So at 230 watts, having done um, the inside testing for him, we can see that he will only need about 88 grams of carbs per hour. So that is at the upper limit of what he can take in. But this is also essentially sparing all of his glycogen reserve. So if we can, if we take this testing to be 100% accurate, we can say that he will get off the bike with essentially his, you know, the glycogen reserves that he had in his working muscles when he got on the bike, which is excellent because you're going to need all or most of that for, for the run where eating becomes a problem. That first hill coming at a transition at Tremblant, you'd need most of your glycogen reserves for that one. Yeah, but then you can you you yeah, that's also <laughs> true. Like that's, <laughs> and then never mind Duplessis after at the yes. you know at the turnaround point, and then again at the very end of it. That's so we will definitely eat into those reserves because you know it's impossible to ride that course at a you know at a variability index of like one point zero with no you know no changes in power at all. But uh, you know this is a uh, mathematical exercise, so. We're going to say that that uh, this athlete will be able to hop off the bike with most of his glycogen stores intact at 230 watts. That's amazing. Now, if you were to take me, um, similar so similar anaerobic threshold of 230, or excuse me, at 290. But if I'm holding 230 watts, my the the amount of carbohydrates I would have to consume to not tap into my glycogen stores is 114 grams per hour, and that now exceeds the physiological limit. So then. 
if I was to hold 230 watts for this race, then I would be drawing down on my glycogen reserves, hills notwithstanding. Like even if it was a flat race and I could hold 230 watts, you know, very steady. So in, you know, if I can, if I could do that race in let's say five hours, uh, which is not super unrealistic at this power, then, you know, at, uh, at a, at a roughly 25 gram of carbohydrate shortfall per hour, that would be coming out of my glycogen storage. So then if he and I rode side by side, which is illegal, don't do it. But if he and I rode the exact same bike leg, uh, he would come off the bike with much more glycogen left than I would. Uh, I would have, I would have sacrificed what 125 grams out of my, um, probably around 400, I would be guessing grams of, of total storage for somebody my size, 400, 450. So a third, a full third of my glycogen storage would be used up on the bike. Whereas, whereas this athlete theoretically could hop off and have, you know, most of it intact. Yes. So that's a very interesting analogy there or a comparison there. And I would suspect that I haven't done the inside testing, but I would suspect I fall very much in the same position as you would. Um, It'll, you should do it. It'll open up your eyes. It's a, it's a really cool test. Um, we should, and actually, so when we, when we, uh, when I spoke with Sebastian a little bit earlier in the week and we'll have the, his episode on next week, we actually didn't get into the very, you know, the nitty gritty of the, of the new inside offering. We talked a little bit more about the background, but it's, uh, it's a really, uh, it's a really powerful tool. It's a really cool look under the hood, as uh, as our friend Michael Erickson talks, you know, puts it. Yeah, I, I think it'd be fantastic for me because I'm I'm getting ready for Ironman Maryland right now, and I noticed when I did Trombone last year, I I came in and my FTP was around two eighty two ninety at that point, um, and I had a target of two hundred and ten watts, and by the end of the ride, I was feeling pretty sapped for energy. Uh, now to make matters worse, <laughs> I had lost, uh, like I had a super bottle, basically really high concentration of carbohydrates yep. and that bounced off yep. on the first, um, the first bridge I went over. <laughs> so, oh, no. yeah. So secure your bottles, uh, as just a general recommendation. Plus there's the littering aspect of it. Obviously it wasn't intentional, but, uh, you don't want to have anything going off into the, uh, the nice wilderness there at, uh, uh Mont Tremblant. But, um, for sure. So that, that kind of put me on the back foot. And then just in general, I find that, uh, maintaining even a lower percentage of the, the threshold power that I've been measured at is challenging. And I, I really suspect it's just because I'm more of an anaerobic athlete than aerobic. So it's, it's difficult to build up that, um, the base supply of energy. Um, so holding the lower power, um, that's more realistic for me where you guys, um, well, especially, uh, in your example with, uh, Sylvain there, um, he's, he's able to, to maintain that higher proportion. And a lot of the really good athletes who end up either the pros or the top age groupers, they can, they're probably able to supply most of it through, uh, through the, the fat metabolism rather than, um, the, the carbohydrates. Yeah. Uh, I think I, I agree with you hundred percent. And, and that the, uh, both at the top end of the um, the top end of the sport, but also at the longer distances, that is that is a v- super super relevant uh, component. So that's it becomes it becomes incredibly important to be able to, you know, um, to feed that feed that bike with as little carbohydrate as possible, while also training yourself to you know absorb as much carbs as you can while while on it and not lose your bottle i did the exact same thing at ttf this you know the the a weekend ago even though that was just a sprint so i didn't really pay for it but uh it was it was hot so i was super thirsty so securing your bottles are is, is important absolutely yeah and there's a psychological impact too even if you don't um physiologically suffer for it then you think oh i need water and then because you're thinking about it now, you become thirstier or if you need the fuel or feel like you need the carbohydrates, you feel like you need them even more because you know you don't have them. Totally. Um, so here's here's kind of the, the takeaway for this episode. Um, and I know we spent a lot of time, we, I'm, I'm not going to throw Andrew under this bus, <laughs> me. I, I spent a lot of time doing high school chemistry here um, and hopefully didn't lose too many folks in, the, <laughs> in that spell. But uh, the key takeaway is that our sports, no matter if you're like a 5,000 meter runner or not, or you know, an ultra distance runner, an Ironman triathlete, are overwhelmingly aerobic and so and again my my own bias on training these systems is more on the training side rather than the rather than the nutrition side 
and training the aerobic system. And that means a lot of long, slow volume, to be perfectly honest. That's the most important way to train that system is often overlooked. Um, people often work too hard and they don't, you know, they don't, they're not, they're not going easy enough to really um, train their bodies to use that fat for fuel or they're not really training that aerobic system as optimally as they can. Uh, and that is a mistake. And that is something that uh, I think, I think more, more athletes can, uh, can stand to do a better job of, and even coaches uh, can stand to do a better job of. And this could be even a, a piece in my own puzzle for my, my performance. But uh, a lot of my early training was, uh, I was uncoached and largely unstructured. So I'd just go out and hammer every workout would be very high intensity, basically exercising to failure. And I feel like I've built up the anaerobic side of things very well. Um, so I can do these hard intervals and efforts um, at, at very high intensity. But then when it comes to the longer rides, I just kind of suffer from those. So and because now I have a proper coach, uh, Alex Vanderlinden, who's uh, an athlete we've worked closely with at Stack. Um, he's told me to focus on this. And it's sometimes it's frustrating knowing that, oh, yeah, I've got a long ride at low intensity, but it is very important. It's it's not maybe the most rewarding in terms of feeling like you just crushed a workout, but um, but it does have a lot of benefits in the, the aerobic development. Absolutely. And, and the thing, the thing that a lot of, I, I think a lot of folks fall into that same camp, Andrew, is that they, they think that in order to make gains, they have to work hard all the time. And that is the absolute wrong way to think about it. That's the, you know, the, the no pain, no gain mentality, which is like absolute horseshit. Um, and uh, a lot of training is not glamorous. It's not. It's not super fun. I get. You know. I, I read comments from from folks I coach, and they say this workout was really boring, and that makes me smile on the inside because I'm like, yes, this is this is supposed to be boring. <laughs> uh, you know, I say that a little bit flippantly. I mean, obviously, the role of a coach is to keep things engaging because when people get super bored, they just stop training, and that's never a good thing. Um, but uh, you know, there is an element of you have to put in the work. You have to do the work, and a lot of the work for an aerobic athlete, for an aerobic dominant athlete is not, is not super sexy. It's not the kind of, you know, it's not the Strava ride that you're going to be boasting about. It's not like that KOM that you crushed or that, you know, that, that like new, new one minute maximal power that you've set. Those are, you know, those are good for the ego, but they're not good for, they're not good for fitness. They're not good for like race day, race day performance. And egos don't win races. In fact, egos often lose races, I would say. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, I think that's the quote for the day is egos don't win races. <laughs> well, there's my one contribution, I guess. <laughs> uh, I do want to make uh, one further point is that, you know, we spent, we spent the day talking about metabolism um, and some coaches talk about this as capacity too. Like they're, they're sort of tied together and that's, you know, your ability to do, uh, to provide, you know, to generate enough energy to sustain a workout, which is really important and definitely a limiter in some workouts and in some races. Um, but it's kind of too easy to get away. It's too, it's easy to get too focused on metabolism and neglect the other components of your training. This is kind of like me putting my coach hat on. And that is, you know, you could, you could develop an amazing aerobic engine. You could be, you know, you could be really good at burning fat for fuel and, um, you know, have a really high VO2 max, you know, ability to use oxygen. Um, and you could then get injured <laughs> because oftentimes, and this happens with running more than any of the other three sports that we you know, commonly engage in is that your metabolic capacity outstrips your body's, you know, structural capacity. And so our, our friend, our mutual friend, uh, Tilbury Davis calls this the overtorque chassis phenomenon where your engine, in this case, your metabolism is, uh, is too strong for the, the chassis of your, of your vehicle. So you can go out and you can, you know, metabolically run, 100 kilometer, 120 kilometer weeks, but your, you know, for argument's sake, your Achilles tendon cannot handle it, or your, you know, you have you have a high hamstring injury because there's just too much mechanical loading that your body is just not capable of of sustaining, or your posture falls apart in the water because you're just, you know, you don't have enough structural rigidity in your frame to be able to keep good posture when you're swimming. Uh, so this is a very very common problem, especially for runners and for triathletes because we. We think that we can, you know, all we're trying to do is train this metabolic capacity, which again is obviously super important. But 
when you when it becomes exceptionally well trained or even like moderately well trained, it is very possible then to outstrip your body's ability to physically transmit all of this good power that you can generate internally to the road or to the water. Uh, and then over time, it's it uh, just breaks down. And I I have a really good personal example about that. Uh, so I'd done my training for Montreal last year, as I've mentioned, probably to the annoyance of a lot of people. I've mentioned it a few times. Uh, <laughs> Wait, what race did you do last year? <laughs> well, let me tell you. Uh, so most of my running was done indoors, just because circumstance and it's easier and you can control the pace and things like that. But one of the the byproducts of running on a treadmill all the time is they tend to have a bit more dampening than running outdoors. So your muscles don't get that pounding. They don't get the, um, the, it's essentially the strengthening that you would get from running on a harder surface. So I was doing a number of long runs outdoors. So I did that leading up, but I just think when it came to the race, um, about 30 K into the run, my legs just felt like they were breaking down and it was kind of the, the delayed onset muscle soreness that you experience after doing say squats for the first time in a couple months. Um, and it, it felt like that while I was still exercising and I had the aerobic capacity to continue, but my muscles had just completely decided to pack it in for the day. And it was, uh, just getting running again was one of the most painful things I can remember. It was those first couple steps transitioning from a walk to a run where it felt like someone was, um, sticking needles in my quads. And it was, it was a very uncomfortable experience. And it was that structural failure that you're talking about, or I'm pretty sure it was anyway. And, uh, for my next full distance race, I'm, I'm really targeting a lot more strength training, a lot more outdoor running to try and, uh, to try and compensate for this and actually trail running as well, because it builds up even more strength. So, um, yeah, so that was my own personal experience where I felt I could continue to run, but my body decided it couldn't. (laughs) So it was, it was frustrating because you feel like you can go, but you just can't, it hurts too much. Yeah, and I think in in my experience, it's that what you what you uh, what you experience in that race is quite a common occurrence, uh, both with my own experience in my in the one Ironman I've done, but also in the in the folks I've coached. Um, and I think one of the reasons that we we find it so much easier to work on capacity or work on met- metabolism is because it's easy to measure. You know, if you're you know if uh, if you're if Alex gives you a workout to you know, do some sweet spot intervals, let's say, you know, he wants you to do an hour worth of work or 45 minutes worth of work, you know, what that what success looks like in that in that capacity in that, you know, I have to hold x watts for y minutes, and I'm done, I'm good. I did I did my job, I pat myself on the back and, you know, go eat a burrito. But in order to in order in order to um, achieve the kind of like the mechanical competency that you need to complete that distance, that's a much foggier understanding like we understand metabolism as you know coaches and and sports science folks we understand it so much better than we understand what it takes to not have your form fall apart you know 30 kilometers into a run or not to have your quads cramp when you're doing a steep downhill at the end of a race or you know pick any number of 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 collapses not not like you know being able to tolerate the arrow position for the last hour of your bike um there's so many so many mechanical breakdowns that happen especially in long races that we understand much less well and so there's you know it it takes it takes a little bit more paying attention it's not quite as easy and it's not quite as like sexy or controllable as um as all of this metabolic training that we we get into yeah it's um it's something that everyone needs to pay attention to and um yeah, getting ready for my next race, um, I'll be happy to share my experiences uh, just in how that additional training helps out. So it's um, yeah, an interesting case study on myself, I guess. Those those are the best. When are you when are you racing? When's the when's the race? So Ironman Maryland is my my next race, and that's uh, September twenty eighth, I believe. Oh, cool. So the other interesting thing, and the second case study I want to do, uh, I treat myself like a bit of a. Uh, a lab rat sometimes, but um, I want to keep it or pay close attention to how I respond going to low altitude because uh, I've recently moved out to Alberta and the the base altitude that I went from in Ontario was around 300 meters. And now I'm at around 1200 to 1300 meters. And there was a pretty noticeable decrease in my performance initially. Hmm, okay. uh, I've clawed a lot of that back, but uh, it's still... In I can tell that the recovery takes longer, especially in swimming. Um, so going back to low altitude, which is 
well, for Maryland, it's basically zero altitude. It's, it is sea level. Um, it's going to be super interesting to see, does my, my FTP go up or does my sustainable power go up? Um, just with that extra oxygen density there. Um, so it'll be really cool to, to look at that. Well, there's some pretty good, there's some pretty conclusive, um, they're basically correction tables for, for mechanical power at altitude. Um, I'll have to dig that up and send it to you. So basically if you say, you know, you're, you know, you're training at 1300 meters, what would your FTP in your FTP is X? What would your FTP, what's the multiplier for your FTP if you then go down to sea level? Um, and it's, you know, uh, I can send that to you and see if that actually pans out or you, or you can just be conservative and then, and then, you know, <laughs> hit, you hit, try to hit your targets as if you were racing in Cochrane, uh, in Maryland. I'm sure you'll be a little bit fresher off the bike. You might leave a little bit on the table, but depends on how it's better than walking it in. I think. Yeah. It depends how bullish you're feeling about your, about your run. Really. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, I guess we'll see how it goes, and then the uh, if I can leave the ego on the table and race day, and not not get too worried when people pass me. Uh, yeah, but no, it's, it, it'll be an interesting comparison. And to be honest, like what did you what did you say about ego earlier? It it loses races. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, so I look. I think we, I know what we're what episode we're doing in early October, Andrew. Sounds good. Uh, provided Andrew's by, race recap. <laughs> provided I'm not just a, a mess, an incoherent rambling mess after the race. <laughs> we'll just eat two breakfasts. You'll be fine. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Well, I think this is a great place to wrap it up then. Uh, but really interesting conversation. I learned a ton from this. And thank you for the uh, introductory biochemistry lesson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, happy to do it. I can, I, like, as I said earlier, I can pontificate on this for, for a long time. It's good fun for me. Uh, is there anything that you want to you wanna plug from uh, Stack or from uh, 4i? At the moment, no. Um, but we do have Eurobike coming up. So um Eurobike will be uh, where we launch a new product, so stay tuned for that. I can't really say much about it now, but uh, we're we're pretty excited. So if you're in Europe or traveling to Europe, and I am sorry, I have no idea when Eurobike actually is. So Andrew, can you give us those dates? Do you have them? Uh, it's September fourth to seventh, and it's in Germany, southern Germany. So the the town's name is Friedrichshafen, which is uh, a fairly small town. So it turns out that when a hundred thousand people come to a small town. You can't find accommodation, so a lot of people end up staying. Like, Surprise! Yeah, it's it's like two hour drives every day each way to get to the, oh, the event. Geez. So it's uh, and all the campsites are filled and everything. Um, and I think last year, like DC Rainmaker and uh, uh, Shane Miller, um, they they brought a, an RV and just camped out in the parking lot, which is actually a really smart <laughs> idea. Yeah, well, and that's maybe that's what you should do. So, well, uh, you know, we'll get a report on on Eurobike from you maybe in uh, in early September. Um, and if you guys are going to Eurobike, make sure you uh, you go say hello to Andrew and the the Four I booth. Absolutely, it'd be great to meet any listeners. Uh, folks, thank you very much for listening. As always, uh, if you like the show, do uh, review and rate us on iTunes and uh, tell your friends and uh, help us grow. Help us reach more like minded endurance nerds uh, who are absolutely out there. 